Today the scripture reading is taken from the book of Second Corinthians, chapter four, verse one to seven. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not we do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Verse three. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is in the who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, "Let light shine out of darkness." Made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory, displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. This is the word from the Lord. Thank you, Lisa. Good morning. Well. This is the uh, the second week of a new uh, series that we're studying together in the church, which is all about evangelism. He who last week uh, introduced the topic, looking at Acts chapter 1, and reminded us that evangelism is something that is the responsibility of every believer, the responsibility of every Christian. I think for most of us, if we're honest... Evangelism is not a topic that we like hearing about. I think for most of us, there's a certain degree uh, of guilt that we feel like we should be doing more uh, in this area than we are. And I think if most of us are honest, we don't feel particularly good at doing evangelism. I uh, oversee a number of missionaries, uh, people who have given their whole lives to telling other people about Jesus. And yet most of them would be quite honest in saying that they don't feel very gifted as evangelists. Uh, They struggle with feelings of fear, uh, sharing with people. They also feel inadequate. And I think that would be true for many of us. Why is evangelism so difficult? Why do we struggle with this? Well, I think one of the problems that we have as we approach evangelism is that we have a misunderstanding about what our role is in the process of sharing the good news of Jesus. And so today we're going to look at this a little bit more and particularly address this question of what is God's part in evangelism and what is our part in evangelism. So that hopefully we can have a clearer understanding of what is it that the Bible calls us to do in witnessing about Jesus to other people. And hopefully, as we have a clearer understanding of our role in the process, that will help it become less of a daunting task for us. We're going to, uh, to look at this uh, topic through the passage that Lisa just read for us. So if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to keep it open at 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, looking at the first seven verses. I think in the first century uh, church in the Greek city of Corinth, they also were struggling with a similar problem. They were also involved uh, in this work of trying to share Jesus with other people, as every church is. We see in, in verse 1 of the passage, it refers to this ministry 
that they were involved in. If we were to take the time to go back and look uh, at the chapters before this, chapter 3, we'd see that the ministry they're talking about is the ministry of knowing God and then reflecting His glory to the people around about us. So here is the similar idea of witnessing, knowing and relating to God and then reflecting that glory to others. So as they were engaged in this this ministry, that is the work of every Christian, of sharing and reflecting God's glory to others, we quickly see from the passage that in this church context, there was disagreement about the way in which we should live out that ministry. Paul, in this letter, which is perhaps one of his most emotional letters in the New Testament, is responding to a group of people that have come into the church in Corinth with a different philosophy, a different understanding of what this ministry should look like. Uh, He is dealing with a group of Jewish believers who are criticizing him. If we look uh, later on in 2 Corinthians in chapter 11, Paul uh, unpacks a little bit more who this group of people are for us. He labels them sarcastically as super apostles. These are a group of Jewish believers uh, who are uh, very versed in Jewish culture and in the Old Testament laws. Uh, And they're seeking to to come into the church, uh, similar to the situation that we, we studied a few months ago in the book of Galatians, coming into the church and telling the people that they need uh, to also be very uh, adherent to these uh, Jewish traditions and laws that we find in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, sorry. But they're not just engaging and criticizing uh, what Paul is doing at a theological or an intellectual uh, level. They also are attacking Paul's character. We can see uh, in this book of 2 Corinthians, they are criticizing Paul's oratory, his public speaking. They're saying basically not only does Paul not keep these Old Testament laws, but also he's a rubbish public speaker. Look at him. He probably, I don't know if he stammers or if he gets muddled up over his words, but compared to them, they were saying he's no good. They were also criticizing his uh, qualifications. They were saying, who is this guy, Paul? And they were coming with their own uh, letters of recommendation or references that other people had written, saying why the church should listen to them rather than listen to Paul. And so here we have a group of people who on the surface look very impressive. And they're really pointing at Paul and saying, look at that guy. That guy's ministry is no good because he's weak. He's ineffective. He's unimpressive. We are the ones you should be listening to because we have got our act together. We know what we're talking about. We can talk uh, with great authority uh, in a very impressive way. We have the letters of recommendation to back it up. And Paul does something very interesting in this, this letter of, uh, of 2 Corinthians. As he's confronted with these criticisms, rather than kind of defend himself by saying, well, actually, my public speaking is not that bad, or saying, well, here are some letters from Jerusalem you know, that say that actually you can't trust me. Actually, what Paul does is he corrects their perspective. He says, you've, you've not only... Uh, wrong in criticizing me. Actually, your whole understanding of how to engage in Christian witness and evangelism is wrong. And he actually emphasizes his weaknesses. He says the true life of the believer is to be weak. 
is to be unimpressive. Because at the heart, this struggle or this tension between these two approaches is the difference between displaying or relying upon your own ability, as these Jewish believers were doing, and actually relying upon and displaying God's ability. And so Paul here is seeking to, uh, to correct this, this understanding. I think these Jewish believers would give us the impression that, it, that we sometimes have in our churches as well, that if we want to be an evangelist, if we want to be a good Christian, that we need to have our act together, that we need to be impressive, that we need to be good uh, at, at evangelism or good at preaching or good at uh, whatever it is that we're being asked to do. And Paul actually says, no, it's not the case. To be a Christian is to be someone who is weak. In verse 7 of the passage, he describes the, the life of the standard Christian as being a jar of clay, something that is fragile, something that is unimpressive, something that is easily broken. And what Paul would say in contrast to these Jewish believers is not that we have to be impressive, but that we come in all of our weakness like a jar of clay. And because we're so weak, because we're so unimpressive, it's because of that that people can see God through us. The problem with the the impressive believers is they were so good, people just saw them. But it's if we're weak and unimpressive that people can start to see God's power at work in us and through us reminded of Acts chapter 4, where uh, Peter and John went before the, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin. And it says there in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, that they recognized that these people were ordinary fishermen, unschooled, without education, and yet noted that they had been with Jesus. Unimpressive, weak, ordinary people that God was speaking uh, through in power. And so this is the message that, that uh, the passage is trying to correct in us, trying to get us to understand this, not that we have to be impressive super evangelists, as these Jewish believers would claim to be, but actually we need to have a better understanding of our part of weakness uh, alongside God's part, which is the power. So let's just look at that a little bit more and see that the differing responsibilities that we have in evangelism. In order to understand God's part in this process of evangelism, we need to have a greater understanding of the depth of our sinfulness. This starts to come out in the letter that Paul writes in verses 3 and 4. In verses 3 and 4, Paul reminds the people that Satan has blinded the people of this world and that the gospel, the good news, is not visible to them, that it doesn't make sense. Verse 4, the God of this age, the devil, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. In verse 3, he talks about the gospel as being veiled, as being covered, such that they cannot understand it. I think this is very important for us to understand as we approach evangelism, to understand that to the people of this world, it doesn't matter how it impressively or in how clear a way we can articulate the good news about Jesus. The, the situation is that they are dead in their sinfulness, that they are totally turned away from God, and nothing that we do can make any difference to that. We can share the gospel with them every day of their lives. We can take them to an Alpha course, a Christianity Explored course. We can do all these things to try and convince them or persuade them 
of their need for Jesus Christ, of the need for their sins to be forgiven. And yet, because of their spiritual state in and of ourselves, nothing that we do will be able to change that situation. Nothing that we can do in and of ourselves will be able to reveal the gospel to them. I think that uh, is, is something that often we don't realize, that actually when we take the gospel out and share with people, if they reject the message or if they don't want to listen, that actually is the normal response. That actually is what the Bible would tell us we should expect, because the gospel is veiled to people. They can't understand it. No matter how clearly we explain it, no matter how much we point to Jesus, in and of ourselves, we can do nothing to rescue people from this situation. That could be quite hopeless in and of itself, uh, quite depressing for us to think that all of our evangelistic efforts will come to nothing. But thankfully, this is where God's part comes in. In verse uh, 6 of our passage, it actually, Paul reminds us that there is something that can be done about people's sins. There is something that can be done about the hopelessness of their situation. And that is that God can make his light to shine out of darkness, to let his light shine into our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory. If you are a Christian already, then that is what has happened in your own life. You couldn't come to an understanding or realization or acceptance of the gospel by yourself. You needed God to shine that light into your heart, to bring that understanding. We need God to to lift that veil that is over the gospel such that it starts to make sense to us. Theologically, this uh, process by which God's uh, Spirit uh, unveils the gospel to us, opens our eyes and our hearts, uh, is, is usually referred to as regeneration. It's a process of transformation that God does in a person's life. And yet we need to to not be under any illusion. This work of regeneration, of changing people's hearts and minds, uh, of helping them to see the gospel for what it is, that is God's part in this process. It is not our responsibility uh, whether or not people come to faith in the Lord Jesus. It is God's part. And of course, that should challenge us uh, as we come to evangelism. How much is prayer central in our evangelism? If God is the only one that can unveil people's eyes and hearts to the gospel, then are we approaching our evangelism, approaching our witness with an attitude of prayer? Prayer really needs to be the first step in sharing the good news about Jesus with anybody. If we are not looking to God to change their lives, then what hope is there? for for the people around us, our friends, our family members, to come to a knowledge of the truth. Prayer must be be fundamental in this whole process. Thankfully, there are many uh, examples throughout church history uh, of God's people turning to prayer in hopeless situations, and then in response to their prayers, seeing God graciously act to draw people to himself uh, and to bring amazing change uh, into different situations. One of uh, the books that I really uh, enjoyed when I was reading when I was a student uh, at university, a book that really uh, challenged me in this area of, of prayer, is a book that some of you may be uh, familiar with. It's a book called uh, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, 
which was written by a New York pastor uh, called Jim Cimbala. And he talks about how he went to, uh, to start pastoring in a church that, to all intents and purposes, had become dead in terms of its evangelism. There were maybe only about 20 people left uh, in the church, uh, and uh, it looked like the church was going to have to clo- close down. And yet God really convicted him that if you want to see growth in the church, if you want to see other people come to faith in the Lord Jesus, it's not about the activities you do. It's not about uh, necessarily your evangelism. The first step has to be prayer. So I just want to read you an excerpt from, uh, from that book. This is as the pastor comes to share with the congregation this impression that God has given them, that they need to pray Uh, for their community, that God would unveil the hearts uh, of the, the people around about them to the gospel. He says, it's not fancy or profound or spectacular, but I want to say to you today with all the seriousness I can muster, from this day on, the prayer meeting will be the barometer of our church. What happens at the Tuesday night prayer meeting will be the gauge by which we can judge success or failure because that will be the measure by which God blesses us. If we call upon the Lord, he has promised in his word to answer, to bring the unsaved to himself, and to pour out his spirit among us. This is the engine that will drive the church. Yes, I want you to keep coming on Sundays, but Tuesday night is what it will really all be about. Then he shares a little about that first meeting that they had. That first Tuesday night, 15 to 18 people showed up. I had no agenda or program laid out. I just stood up and led the people in singing and praising God. Out of that came extended prayer. I felt a new sense of unity and love among us. God seemed to be knitting us together. In the weeks that followed, answers to prayer became noticeable. New people gradually joined with talents and skills that could help us. Unsaved relatives and total strangers began to show up. We began to think of ourselves as a Holy Ghost emergency room where people in spiritual trauma could be rescued. In most hospitals, the emergency room isn't decorated as beautifully or as fashionably as the rest of the building, but it's very efficient in saving lives. We're a prime example of what the great Scottish devotional writer Andrew Bonner wrote in 1853. God likes to see his people shut up to this that there is no hope but in prayer. Herein lies the church's power against the world. There is no hope but in prayer. Herein lies the church's power against the world. If we want to be a church that is serious about evangelism, that is uh, serious about reaching out to others and sharing their needs of Jesus Christ, then we also need to be a church that is serious in prayer. If we believe that God is the only one that can raise spiritually dead people, then we need to call out on him and ask him to do that before we share anything of our faith with those people. I think it helps us to recognize as we see that this actually is God's role, uh, rescuing people from their sins and not our responsibility, it's helpful uh, to see that we are actually part of a bigger process, a bigger work that God is doing. To see that someone's salvation, whether a family member or a work colleague or a friend, isn't something that just relies on us alone. We are part of a wider work that God is doing in their lives. When we train our, uh, our missionaries in evangelism, we, we use a, a diagram that I found quite helpful that I'd just like to, uh, to share with you. 
that helps us think more about this process that God is taking people through. Let me just explain it, uh, what it looks like for the sake of the audio recording. Uh, basically, what we have here is, is a chain uh, made up of many links going from the, the left-hand side to the right-hand side. And what this chain represents is a person's spiritual journey. So here we have a person going from the far left, where they, they want nothing to do with God. They have uh, nothing uh, or no desire to, uh, to know God or to follow him. Right through to the right-hand side of the chain, where uh, they are a person who is, uh, is spiritually mature, uh, not only understands the things of the Christian faith, but is living them out. Uh, and this uh, journey that people go along uh, is a journey in which there will be uh, many influences in their lives. About halfway along the, the chain, uh, there's a picture of a cross to represent that at some point in a person's spiritual journey, uh, they will take that decision uh, to uh, repent of their sins and of the wrong things that they have done and to give their lives to God, to say to the Lord Jesus, I believe in you and I want to follow you. Uh, I want to trust in you. For my salvation. And so there is some point there in the process at which someone will, will be transformed uh, spiritually. Uh, and yet uh, we see that in this diagram that a journey to spiritual maturity does not end at that point when someone becomes uh, a Christian, that it's a much fuller and longer journey. What this diagram tries to capture is that actually for most of us in that, that process of growing uh, in the Christian faith, it actually takes many influences along the way. Each one of the links in this chain is supposed to represent a significant event, a significant relationship, a significant conversation that helped move us closer towards spiritual maturity in the Lord Jesus. And so we can see from this, I, I think this certainly was true of my experience, I'm sure it's true for many of you, is very rare that in the people that we seek to share the gospel with, that we will be the one to take them all the way through this process. Maybe God will use us in a person's life one step along the way. Maybe he'll use us nearer the, the left-hand side of that, that chain to be someone that challenges them about God. And yet maybe it seems that there's no response, no reaction to that, that nothing comes of it. Well, we shouldn't be discouraged because this is a wider process. It's God's responsibility to take them all the way through this process to spiritual maturity and only something that he can do by his Holy Spirit. And so too, it may be that God gives us the pleasure of being the ones that just arrive at the, the right moment, just as that person is ready to make a decision to follow after the Lord Jesus. Or it may be that God is asking us to continue sharing uh, and, uh, and helping people to more fully understand the good news, uh, even after they have uh, committed their lives to Jesus. And so our role in this whole process of evangelism is not to be super apostles, as those people in Corinth tried to be, and be impressive and take people all the way through this process from, from A to B. Our role in this process is to be responsive to the Spirit of God, to pray and ask Him, to, uh, to take people along this, uh, this spiritual journey, but also to be sensitive to what is he asking us to do at the particular stage that this person is at in their process. Uh, how is he asking us to journey with, uh, with the people that are in our uh, families, in our communities? Uh, it's not a process that just stops 
when people reach conversion. And we have a responsibility to continue uh, encouraging and sharing with one another uh, in the church as well. So we've highlighted uh, some of the, the, the things that are God's responsibility. Ultimately, this, this whole process of transforming hearts and minds is God's responsibility. We've touched on some of the things that uh, we can do in this process. Uh, prayer, being open, or understanding what God is doing uh, in the wider picture. And I just finally want to just very quickly draw out some of the other things in the passage that is mentioned are our responsibility or our part. And I would encourage you, do go away and look at this passage later on and, and meditate a little bit more on these things. Are there ways in which you, like the people in Corinth, have perhaps had the wrong perception or the wrong understanding of what it means to be an evangelist or to share our faith? Just very quickly, uh, some of the things that, that Paul writes here that we can do. Well, the first thing is that we should not lose heart, verse 1 of the passage. I think many of us in our evangelism, we lose heart. I think because often we think it all depends on us, because we're trying to be those super evangelists. Uh, Don't lose heart. This is part of a wider process, and God will use whatever you say, whatever you share, whatever you're able to do in all your weakness uh, as part of the the wider work that he is doing. Keep praying. Keep sharing. Uh, Who knows uh, in the years to come what fruit God will bear in people's lives uh, from, from the work that you're able to do in sharing with them. We see verse 2, we also, uh, in this work of sharing, have a responsibility to communicate with integrity. It says that we should uh, not uh, use secret or shameful ways or deception. We don't want to uh, invite people to come along to a party and, and then they get there and discover it's actually a Bible study. We want to be uh, very open with people and not use some of these uh, Uh, ways that uh, do not have integrity. We don't want to distort the Word of God, it says in the passage. We don't want to either play down the costs or the price of being a Christian. Neither do we want to overemphasize the blessing or the prosperity that comes through being a Christian. Uh, We want to be open and honest uh, about the Christian gospel. Uh, Verse 2 says that we should set forth the truth plainly to those around about us. This is our responsibility, not to convert people, but to set forth before them plainly the good news about Jesus Christ, to communicate clearly to them. That's a challenge to us. How how well can we articulate what we believe? Uh, When uh, Kirsty and I used to lead a a church planting team, one of the things we would often do in our, uh, our team is we would spend time together just practicing sharing the gospel with one another, to see if in maybe just even two or three sentences we could explain who Jesus is or we could explain uh, what the good news is. Uh, If we could explain in two or three sentences a a testimony, what God had done in our lives. And and we needed to do that because we discovered that doesn't always come naturally. We are weak and we do fumble our words and we do find it hard to explain uh, what we believe. And so maybe that's something we can do in our links groups or in our families, just to practice with one another. How, how actually do we articulate what we say? I don't think we want to memorize the Apostles' Creed that we said earlier and say that to everybody uh, as our evangelistic witness. We want to very naturally just be able to say, uh, this was what my life was like, and then I met Jesus. Uh, and, and this is the difference that has happened since then. Uh, but it is something that we do need to think about. We do need to practice. How can we communicate more clearly? 
We want the hindrance for people coming to faith to be that veil that is over the gospel, to be the opposition of the God of this world, Satan. We don't want it to be uh, because of our own uh, um, uh, mistakes or or, uh, because we've not spent enough time maybe uh, practicing or thinking about these things that gets in the way. And then finally, this passage would remind us that actually this work of proclaiming the gospel is a work of proclaiming Jesus. Verse 5, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. We've already said that that work of proclaiming the, the, the gospel or changing people's lives is ultimately God's responsibility. Our responsibility in that is to point people to God, not to point them to ourselves, as the, the, the Jewish believers were doing in Corinth, saying, look how impressive I am, come to my church, uh, is not, not to point to the church either. I think often we can be quite uh, guilty of this in our evangelism. We find it easier to talk about the church than we do to talk about Jesus. And so we tell people a lot, oh, I went to church on Sunday, or I come to my church. Uh, isn't he an amazing uh, pastor and preacher? Uh, but we're not supposed to point to the church we're supposed to point to Jesus. Uh, And so that very much is at the center uh, of our role. Taking people along that spiritual journey to maturity is God's part in the process. Our part in the process is as clearly as we can in all of our weakness, with all of our failings, just naturally the people that God has made us to be, just pointing them to Jesus, saying, he came into my life and he made a real difference. I was lost and dead in my sins, and he transformed me. So are we a people who are praying, praying for those around about us, praying that God would help us in all of that weakness and inadequacy to yet be able to reflect something of God's glory into this world? Are we proclaiming? Uh, Are we, in, in all of our stumbling words, trying as best as we can just to share with people? Well, if God is to use us in this way, then of course, our own hearts need to be open first. Uh, We do need to be open to God using us in this way, but we are reminded before we can introduce other people to this good news about Jesus, we also need to be well aware of that good news ourselves and let it be a reality in our own lives. Uh, So let us come to God just now and pray that he would do this great work in our own lives, but also pray that in all, uh, all our frailty that he would use us Uh, to help others to see this as well. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the letter of 2 Corinthians. We thank you for this corrective uh, teaching that Paul brings, that actually to be a Christian is not about being uh, a super apostle or a super evangelist, that it's not about having our act together and having very polished words about uh, doing everything in a smooth uh, way. But Lord, I thank you that you come to us just as we are in all of our frailty, like jars of clay. And I thank you, Lord, that you uh, can even in that frailty use us to demonstrate your power and your glory to others in this world. I pray and ask that you would forgive us for the times in which we have got our evangelism uh, muddled up for the ways in which we've thought that it all depends on us, the ways in which we have sought uh, to uh, persuade or uh, to uh, uh, almost uh, force people into belief rather than coming to you 
in fervent prayer and asking that by your Holy Spirit that you would take people out of darkness and into the light. Lord, we recognize that your gospel is veiled to those around about us, and we can, in and of ourselves, do nothing about that. So we do come to you and we pray for our family members, for our friends, for our work colleagues who do not know you. Lord, and we ask that you would lift that veil from the gospel, that you would open their eyes to the truth, and that you would uh, draw them to yourself, that in time that you would take them along that, that process from not knowing you through that point of decision to being spiritually mature believers in the Lord Jesus. Lord, we pray whatever you would have us do in that that process, whatever link in the chain that you would have us be in the lives of the people around about us, Lord, we pray that you would make us sensitive to your Holy Spirit, that you would make us open, not only to your work uh, in our own lives, but that you would make us open to what you want to do through us in the lives of others. And we ask these things in the powerful, saving name of Jesus the Messiah. Amen.